The steps to the dark mountain path were tiresome and treacherous. Two friends were making their way to the last place in Middle Earth that anyone wanted to go, Mordor, a land cloaked in darkness where the sun wouldn't shine and the air was stale and putrid. Sam and Frodo climbed the steps, uncertain of what they would find before them. They had a guide, a gangly little creature named Gollum, but he was not to be trusted. They weren't sure if they would ever get home, if they would ever find rest again. Despair lurked on the edges of their minds. It was a low point in their story, and they knew it. They recognized how bad things were. And so what did they do? What did they do to find hope to carry on in that desperate moment? They told stories. They remembered that in the great stories that they knew, things often went like this, where the heroes found themselves in desperate situations, where hope seemed loss and defeat inevitable. But in those old tales, the really good ones that were preserved in verse and song, those heroes prevailed somehow. Light would come in in the dark moments and pierce the shadows. And as Sam and Frodo remembered these stories, they found the strength. They found the hope to carry on. Well, today we find ourselves in a difficult moment in our cultural story. This past week, there was a presidential debate that left many people deeply discouraged at how far things have fallen. It's bewildering that of all the qualified leaders in our country, the two leading candidates we have are the best we could come up with, regardless of the outcome of this election. The future seems a little bit bleak, a little bit uncertain with either leader at the helm. Now, if we were a monarchy, we could blame the king. But as a democratic society, we have only ourselves to blame. As a people, we've allowed public discourse to sink so low. As a people, we've turned against each other with blaming and accusation. As a people, we've accepted an absence of truth and integrity in our leaders. It makes me wonder if God is just simply giving us the leaders that we deserve, leaders that reflect where we are as a society. We also have faced something else in the last couple of weeks in Charlotte. We've come face to face with the racial tension in our city. There was a tinderbox of pain, of despair, of anger, and it was just waiting for a spark. And whether or not it was justified, that the shooting was that spark. And as much as leaders would like to keep a lid on things, sort things out, as much as we might like just life to go back to normal... We've seen some things in our city that we can't now unsee. We know now that there are some things that are not well. There's a lack of trust, of mutual understanding. Add to this some other 
just low grade or sometimes they come to the surface fears and anxieties that we experience, the ongoing threat of terrorism, the, the lingering fear of another economic turndown. Things are okay right now, but when could that shift again? And then just look at the national news, look around the world. There's, there's instability and unrest everywhere, it feels like. It's a difficult moment in our cultural story. And on top of this, as Christians, we feel this, this other level of, of pressure. Over the past few generations, the social and moral fabric of the country has shifted in a way that makes Christians feel uncomfortable. Tim Keller and John Inazu describe it like this. In 1941, one of the main social facts in the United States was that public norms were dictated by a distinctly American Protestant culture in the white middle class. As such, Protestant churches provided many Americans with a great part of their social identity. The majority of Americans, whether or not they were devout, identified with some church and its basic teachings. So basically what they're saying is, for a long time, there was just sort of a, a normal, accepted, cultural standard of morality and understanding of how things went, and a lot of people, whether or not they were faithful followers of Christ, still identified with the church, still identified with its teaching. Well, that's no longer the case. Things have been changing for a while, but over the last few years, we've witnessed some pretty monumental changes to that, especially in the areas of sexuality, marriage, and gender. Some of those basic moral notions that were just assumed, that people just held, are now not only not held, but they're being challenged legally, overturned, and if you hold them, you're labeled as a bigot. You're labeled as someone who's full of hatred. Things have radically shifted. In the church, you feel it from external pressures, but we also feel it internally within the church. Bending to the pressure of the wider culture, many churches are changing doctrine. False teaching is rampant, and there's churches that have been around for centuries in this country that have borne a lot of fruit in our culture that are now being torn apart or simply just withering on the vine. So it's a difficult moment in our cultural story, and it's a difficult moment to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a staleness in the air. There's something uh, that has a bad taste in the water. It doesn't feel like we should drink it. There's apprehension about an uncertain future. So what should we do? Should we run away? Should we move to Canada? I've lived in Canada, wonderful country, but many of the same problems. No friends like Sam and Frodo, we need to cultivate the practice of telling stories. Stories that bring us hope and clarity and remind us we're not alone. And especially as Christians, we need to remember the stories of God's people to remember that they've faced very similar things before, that they've actually faced a lot worse than this. And many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are facing a lot worse than we are. But we need our stories. We need them to capture our imagination, to remind us of the future that God has secured for us, as the prophet Jeremiah wrote. Stories that call us to be faithful in the present, 
stories that inspire creative thinking of how to respond, how to be faithful in our particular cultural moment. And most of all, like all great stories, we need a story about a hero who prevails against all odds. Well, over the next two months, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel. In Daniel, we have six stories and five apocalyptic visions that together have one great purpose, which is to encourage the people of God, to help them stay faithful and to carry on in their desperate circumstances. Because the stories and the visions of Daniel don't come out of just some neutral time. They actually come out of a moment in the story of people of God that was incredibly difficult because of their unfaithfulness over generations in the northern kingdom, in the southern kingdom. God had removed his people from the promised land. He'd taken them away from the holy city of Jerusalem and its temple. It's called the exile. God allowed the Babylonians to conquer Judah, which was the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, to take many of its best and brightest into exile where they would be forced to serve and to live in this pagan culture. But what was that like for them? We get a little snippet, Psalm 137, of the psychology, what was going on in their soul. That psalm opens by saying, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And they were mocked by their captors, and they said, play us one of the songs of Zion. And they, these musicians, they said, no, we can't do that. But they didn't want to forget. And then they, you can feel as that psalm goes along that their anger builds. And so by the end of the psalm, it's one of the most shocking psalms we have, you have these psalmists, these writers of God's word, blessing the person who dashes the Babylonians' babies against the rocks. This is a horrible moment for God's people to be ripped from their cultural identity, their geography, their promised land. But in the midst of the strife, God did not abandon his people. He did not turn his back on them. He allowed them to experience this great exile, this hardship, but he continues to work graciously in their lives to bless them, to care for them, and to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Overview of the book of Daniel, uh, the first six chapters, one through six, uh, follow Daniel and his three friends as they work out how do we be faithful in these different situations in Babylonian culture. And then the last half, chapters seven through 12, record these rather bizarre apocalyptic visions that were given to Daniel. We're going to look at chapters one through seven this fall. So mostly the stories, but then we'll hit one of the visions in chapter 7. It's one of the most important because this idea of the Son of Man comes up in Daniel chapter 7. That's where Jesus is getting this self-identification, his favorite title for himself, which is the Son of Man. So to introduce where we're going in Daniel, today I want to lay out two ways that Daniel's going to help us in our cultural moment. The first way it's going to help us is that by reading it with the Spirit, we can find wisdom. Now, wisdom is not just copying down what somebody else has done. You probably had classes in high school or college where you didn't really have to learn the material. You could just kind of memorize it. 
and then you go into the test or the essay, whatever, and you, and you just write it down, and you recall it, and you forget it like a week later. That's not going to do. We, we can't do that with Daniel. Say, oh, Daniel did this. Let's memorize that. Let's write that down in our story. Rather, we need a fresh reading in the midst of our moment of the book of Daniel. We need to interpret it responsibly, not just copy it. You see, what we face today is very different than Daniel and what his friends faced. America is not Israel. America is also not Babylonian culture. Now, we'll have some similarities. There'll be some touch points, but there's a lot of distance between their situation and ours. If we just try to copy what Daniel and his friends did and say, okay, well, that's the blueprint. Let's just do that every time they did that and not do that when they didn't do that, we'd end up with this weird mishmash of cultural engagement strategies. So that's not what Daniel is. It's not an instruction manual for faithful living. It's a story of real people who found themselves in a very hard time trying to work out their faith. And if we read it as such by the Spirit, it can lead us to a lot of creative thinking and to wisdom. While our circumstances are different, there is one thing that we share in common with Daniel and his buddies, and that is the call of God. This call has remained the same in the Old Testament and the New. And it is this dual call, this twin call, to be both a blessing to the world and to remain apart from the world. It's a call to to mission and to holiness, to cultural engagement and cultural resistance. You see it in Old Testament. You see it in New Testament. It is the call for the church today. Let me briefly highlight a couple of scriptures that show us each aspect of the call. We heard from Jeremiah 29. It's this letter written from Jeremiah, really from the Lord, to the exiles in Babylon. He's writing to people like Daniel and his friends. He's writing to people like the sad musicians down by the river who are so angry. And this is what he writes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons that gives your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. And then this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare is literally seek the shalom. If you know that word shalom, loosely translated peace, but it really means wholeness, goodness, thriving. And so God is commanding these exiles to seek the wholeness and well-being of this city. Yes, I know you live in a pagan culture. Yes, I know they will mistreat you and mock you. Yes, I know you will feel alienated and dislocated and desperate, but I want you to seek the shalom of this foreign place, this pagan and sometimes wicked culture. I want you to be a light there, God says. I want you to love its people. I want you to pray for it. So that's our call to cultural engagement, to mission, to being a blessing to the wider world. But there's another side of it. It is the call to resist the world and its influence. The call to be set apart 
The call to be holy and unstained, to not fall in love with the world, but to resist its pride and its lust and materialism, and to know that no matter how good we do, the world is going to hate us. Even if we love the world, we'll still receive a lot of hate in response. The scripture for this is from 1 Peter chapter 1. There's lots of scriptures about walking in holiness in the New Testament. I chose this one because Peter, if you know 1 Peter, he's working with the same motif of exiles. He considers Christians to be exiles, in a spiritual exile, in this world. And here's what he says to these exiles. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter is bringing out the other side. He's not negating what Jeremiah has said, but he's emphasizing the importance of, of holiness. As we engage with the world, we cannot become like the world. We must remain holy and set apart even as we go out and seek the shalom of the city. We cannot adopt its ways. Brings to mind Romans 12 where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to think differently because the world is deceitful. The world is not a neutral place just a neutral playground that we can go and do good deeds. It is under the control of the prince of the air. Now, ultimately, we know God is sovereign, but a lot of power is being exercised through the evil one. And it's going to work against us, and it's going to try to suck us back into its ways and confuse us and deceive us. And so the call for God's people is stay holy. Engage, but don't compromise. Be in the world, but not of the world. Be on mission, but don't lose your distinctiveness. Well, living out this call is a balancing act. And it's actually very hard to maintain the right balance. If you could throw up that slide on the screen. So I came up with this diagram, living faithfully in the world, a balancing act. You'll notice on the bottom in the blue shapes, um, you have a balance with a fulcrum in the middle. I showed this to one of my sons. I said, do you know what this is? And he said, a seesaw. Of course it's a seesaw. And that actually brings it to life even more. So what I want you to imagine is you're trying to stand on this seesaw and keep the balance. And if you do that, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to have a foot on both sides of the middle. And you're shifting your weight, trying to put equal weight on both one. So on one side, you have this resist pursue holiness, and on the other, engage and pursue mission. That's the call of a Christian. That's where we want to live, equal weight on those, keeping the balance. But as I said, it's very hard to do. It doesn't take but just a little step one way or the other, and we start shifting too much weight to one side. And if we do that, we go either towards assimilation or withdrawal. If in the name of engaging and pursuing mission and loving the culture, we we forget about holiness, then we begin to move and to become more and more like the culture. We assimilate. We embrace its values. We embrace its thinking. 
I think that's what's happened a lot with the liberal church today. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. It started with a right desire to love people, to meet people where they are, but somewhere along the way, they let go of holiness and truth and doctrine, and consequently, they lost their balance. But on the other side, if we put all our weight on resistance and holiness, then we kind of lighten up on that mission thing, that engaging and shalom thing. What do we do? We tend to withdraw. Now, withdrawal can look many different ways. It can look like total cultural removal, where we literally sever ties with the culture, we create our own little subculture over here, and we rarely venture out of it to the world. That's one type. Another type of withdrawal is withdrawal into hatred and anger. This is a form of resistance without love and without relationship. We grow so discouraged by the darkness of the world, by the sin in the world, that we grow cold and we just lob rocks of judgment at it and feel good about ourselves. So a church that goes and pickets with angry messages at a funeral of a sinner as if there's any other kind of funeral is an example of this type of withdrawal. We're not engaging, we're not seeking the welfare, we're not on mission, we're just lobbing the rocks. So we want to stay in the middle of that seesaw. We want to put equal weight on resisting the wickedness of the culture and at the same time engaging with it and seeking its welfare. This is what Daniel and his friends were doing. They were trying to remain holy, and we'll see times where they resisted. and They said, no, we're not going to do that. But they were also seeking the shalom of Babylon. They remained in the culture. They held positions in the government. Sometimes we see them resist, sometimes we see them engage. And as we read their story by the Spirit, Him helping us, we need to learn how to do this balancing act right in our world. So that's the first way Daniel can help us, give us some wisdom. There's a second way, and I want to actually suggest that the second way is what comes out more powerfully in the book, and I think it's the more important help that we need. And that is that Daniel gives us hope. The overriding message of the book is one of incredible hope and encouragement for God's people whenever they find themselves in a difficult place in their story, which is all the time. God's people are always in some sort of difficult place in the story. I had an interesting experience studying Daniel this past summer. Part of the reason I chose to study this book and to preach it was actually personal. I came to it with a lot of questions and with a heavy heart. I was really troubled, I am troubled, by what's happening in our culture. Increasingly, I feel like I don't belong. It makes me, um, it, I mean, it bothers me that because I believe certain things about sex or marriage or gender or life, that I'm labeled a bigot, that I'm hated. I, you probably have this too, maybe family members or friendship, but there's certain old friendships I have and it feels like this huge wedge between us because we see this world a little differently and we see some of these things differently. Well, the more alienated I, I felt from culture, the more I struggled to know how to engage because I had a sense that we had this dual call of resisting and engaging, but I couldn't figure out, well, where do you put the weight and how do I do it in this situation and this situation? And so I went to Daniel looking for very practical, straightforward answers. I wanted the time-tested strategies 
for maintaining the balance. And I think Daniel can offer some wisdom, and we'll see that. But again, it's not an instruction manual. It's not something I can just write down. It's not going to tell me who do I vote for. It's not going to tell me how exactly do I prepare my kids to live in this world. It's not going to tell me how do I be friends with the person that thinks I'm a bigot. You see, I was approaching Daniel, and I think oftentimes we approach Daniel, even in Sunday school when we tell the stories, is, well, what can we do to be faithful? Daniel and his friends were faithful. Let's be faithful like them, and if we do, then maybe things will go well for us like it went for them. Our basic assumption is the book is about us. It's about our behavior, our choices, our faithfulness. But what I came to see is that Daniel is a book about God and his faithfulness. It's easy to read through it and say, well, Daniel and his friends are the heroes, and so let's be like them, but Daniel and his friends are not the heroes of this book. We can learn from them, but they're not our source of hope. God is the hero of the book of Daniel. God is the one who time and time again prevails against all odds. The writer Brian Chappelle describes it like this, God is the hero God saves a sinful and weak people. He preserves young men from impurity and old men from lions. He answers prayers and interprets dreams. He exalts the humble and humbles the proud. He vindicates the faithful and vanquishes the profane. He rescues covenant-forsaking people by returning them to the land of the covenant, and he promises a glorious future to those with a sinful past. God's the hero of this story. And one of the distinguishing characteristics of this hero that we see is his sovereignty. In story after story, vision after vision, we see that God is sovereign over the affairs of human beings. He raises rulers up and he brings them down. He cares for his people and preserves them from harm, even in the little details of their individual lives. And in the end, the overriding message of Daniel is that God's kingdom will be established. It will replace all the other kingdoms of the world. I went looking for practical help in the book of Daniel, but what I found was a precious hope, a hope grounded in the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. And it turns out it's that hope that I need the most that hope that I need when the future does seem bleak. It's that hope that I need to keep striving to maintain the balance on the seesaw. It's the hope that I need to love people who see me as a bigot. And it's that hope that I need to be at peace regardless of elections because bad leaders have never thwarted God's purpose. His kingdom will be established. In their lowest moment, When hope seemed lost, Sam and Frodo remembered the old stories and they found strength and hope once again. But as they were telling the old stories, they realized something else. It occurred to them that they were part of the same story that they were telling. The light that had pierced the darkness in that old tale was the same light that they now possessed that was lighting up their darkness. And as this realization came over them, In the midst of this incredibly dark land, they were filled with mirth. 
And Frodo laughed this long, clear laugh, a sound that rang out in those desolate surroundings. I pray that over the next couple of months, as a lot of people are really feeling pretty dreary, pretty discouraged about the world around us, Christians, non-Christians, I pray that as we engage in the book of Daniel, that this fresh realization will come over us that we're still living in the same story. And that just as God pierced the darkness for Daniel and his friends, he also pierces the darkness for us. And as we rest in that hope, I pray that mirth and joy would well up in our souls. And from us, from the church, there would be a long, clear laugh ringing out in a tired and discouraged world. Let's pray.